1: This Ben Show, Benny J. Bonus Interview, is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J. Take it away.
0: It's bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Wednesday, December 11th, 2019. But of course, it's the podcast. You're listening to this any old time. As we do it in bonus time uh, on Bonus Hour with the Ben Jarofsky Show, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself or herself. In this case, himself. Distinguished guest, lean into that microphone and introduce yourself.
2: Uh, my name is Edward Buzz Palmer. Uh, I am... Uh the founder of the African-American Patrolman's League, uh, uh, did a number of other uh, things. Uh, uh, I do most of my work internationally now. I'm a collector of presidents and prime ministers worldwide.
0: collector okay uh just so everybody knows he's being very modest uh buzz palmer is a legend in the city of chicago i've been uh reading about him uh and uh, talking to friends about him forever i have a dear friend uh, kevin blackstone i know you're listening he's been bugging me you gotta have buzz on you gotta have buzz on well kevin this one's for you buzz palmer i'm looking at him right now sitting across the microphone for me all right buzz Uh, Let's uh, let's take a moment to introduce who you are uh, to our younger listeners. They may not realize the significance of Buzz Palmer in the history of Chicago. So let's take it. Let's uh, let's just start back. Uh, You're Chicago uh, born and raised. You were just telling me that you're Chicagoan by birth. Lived here your whole life.
2: Yes, all my life, except in uh, the time that I was in the military. I was in the military in the Air Force for five and a half years.
0: Well, we'll talk about that. So you grew up on the South Side? Yes. Mm -hmm. A a graduate of Lindblom High School, you were telling me. That's correct. And uh, what year did you get out of Lindblom? Uh, 55.
2: 55,
0: okay. So in 1955, what did you decide to do?
2: Uh, I decided to join uh, the Air Force because my parents were poor and I didn't see any possibility of them being able to pay for a college education for me.
0: Now, were you a smart kid? Would you, if your parents could have paid, would you have done well in college?
2: Uh, I doubt it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) At least you're honest. Yeah. (laughs) Primarily because I always felt that I was smarter than uh, most of the instructors. When I went into the military, uh, into the Air Force, they do tests on uh, you when you come out of basic training. Mm -hmm. And when they did the test on uh, me for what type of career field I should go into, it came out that uh, uh, there was a progressive white uh, counselor from upstate New York, and he said, "My God, with your uh, uh, with your uh, result, you could go into intelligence." And I thought he was insane—a uh, black guy going into intelligence. So I told him uh, the best I could hope for was to be an air policeman, shine shoe. Directing traffic, and he said, "Well, uh, put in for it. Let's see what happened." And lo and behold, uh, I was uh, put into intelligence, Air Force intelligence. There are three fields in Air Air Force intelligence: 201 is crypto analyst, 202 uh, was analyst, which is what I became, and 203 were linguists and how after i went through that i spent a year and a half in the philippines monitoring the chinese communists and then after that i went to germany and i spent three years in germany and while i was monitoring uh the polish and the uh, Russian uh, intelligence system.
0: Now, when you say you're monitoring, what does that mean?
2: Well, what I had, see, this is a a precursor uh, similar to NSA, National Security Agency. And all my reports went to uh, uh, GCHQ, which is... THE uh, BRITISH intelligence MONITORING SYSTEM. SEE, THE GERMAN HAD ORIGINATED uh, uh, RADIO INTELLIGENCE. AND AROUND, I'D SAY, AROUND 70, 80 PERCENT OF ALL INTELLIGENCE CAME uh, FROM THE MONITORING OF THAT. WE ALWAYS REGARDED THE CIA AS CLOWNS BREAKING IN DOORS, LISTENING, Mm -hmm. YOU KNOW, THAT TYPE OF STUFF. Interestingly, the uh, one of our factors, which you probably know about, was the U-2, mm-hmm. which uh, was ran basically for us to monitor the, uh, the Soviet uh, air defenses. Those are
0: airplanes that flew over the Soviet Union taking pictures.
2: Yeah, and the uh, Soviets realized that they were flying over the country, but the, they were flying so high that their radar, uh, their rocket system couldn't knock it down mm-hmm. and so there was a famous Gary Powers yeah, Gary Power. you know, was flying the U-2 and he got hit well what uh, what all of us in uh, my field if we were in danger of being captured we were supposed to commit suicide because we knew too much I was able to predict you know, war 70 give the United States 72 hours advance notice. Now that sounds odd, but uh, when you talk about, you know, about Gary Power. Well, when his plane went down, he had a little uh, pin that he was supposed to stick himself with, and he would die almost immediately. In the meantime, Eisenhower is meeting with Khrushchev in uh, uh, Vienna, Austria. So I almost said Vienna, Austria. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, the meeting started, uh, Khrushchev told Eisenhower, and then, uh, well, we got one of your planes. And Eisenhower immediately felt that it didn't have any nomenclatures on it, uh, uh, American nomenclature, so he could deny it. So he said, well, I don't know. That's our plane. It might have been somebody else. And he said, yeah. And we got the pilot, too. Yeah. he said, oh, yeah. crap. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, this is spy stuff at the height of the Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, where the United States was locked, for better or for worse, uh, in a, uh, a cold and heated battle uh, with the uh, Soviet Union, sort of for supremacy of the world, if you will. Yeah. And uh, so you were a cog in the machine, the intelligence machine. You're sitting there listening. When you say you're monitoring, I well, presume I had, you're, you're listening I had, to...
2: I had uh, 18, let's see, uh, eight, uh, around 24 operator, radio operators, uh, monitoring the Soviet Union that would bring what we call traffic, back to me and then I would try and make intelligence out of it. And I had around six, uh, and when I was in China, uh, in the Philippines, we were using Chinese, uh, 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 Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese experts mm-hmm. uh, and they would bring the material to me and then I would try. Do you speak Not, Russian? No. I speak German. And so, as uh, and the funny thing about this is, where I was stationed was around 18 miles from a very, per- uh, uh, very important person's home. Do you know whose person that was? No. Donald J. Trump.
0: Oh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> you mean at Daddy Trump's home in Germany? Yeah,
2: the, Karlstadt. Uh, Karlstadt. The, uh, uh, the, I've went there many times for wine fest. The ancestral home
0: <laughs> of our enlightened president. Uh, is that what you're
2: alluding to, Buzz? <laughs>
0: <laughs> in his uh, homeland of Germany. Yeah. Uh, people tell me that Donald Trump's uh, rhetoric would sound a lot better if it was uttered in his native German. Sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, bad joke that I stole from somebody else. Uh, all right, so you're a spy, basically, is what you're <laughs> Well, see,
2: what right. I had was I had a crypto clearance. Now, crypto clearance is one degree above top secret, mm-hmm. and so almost anything uh, uh, that pertained to uh, uh, and what uh, I was the only uh, black intelligence analyst in the total Far East, mm-hmm. and then when I went to Germany, I was the only uh, uh, intelligence analyst. In uh, Europe.
0: So you're uh, a black guy from Chicago. Let's yeah. just take a moment to appreciate sure. this. <laughs> it's the 1950s. The United States is at uh, Cold War with the Soviet Union. Some black guy from Chicago, Lindblom High School, the South Side, is gathering uh, intelligence. Intelligence. When, when he says that, folks, basically, what <laughs> they're snooping on the phone conversations of the Germans the, and the Russians and the Polish and the Polish, trying to see what the communists are up to, what they know. About us, uh, they probably know that you're listening, uh, Buzz Palmer. So <laughs> Lord knows what kind of counterintelligence they're kicking back at you if you follow what I'm saying. So you have to try to figure out what's real and what's not. Now, then you would what funnel it on to your superiors, or would you? Your well,
2: we ally? had what was called six ply, and uh, uh, this was uh, carbon paper, and it was uh, uh, six uh, anything that I wrote on it. Would immediately uh, go to GCHQ in Pelham, uh, England, that was their intelligence system, and to Fort Meade, uh, Maryland, which was the head of uh, U.S. Air Force Security Service, mm-hmm. that was part of uh, the basic part of uh, NSA. See, NSA, in order to function, it, it needed legs. So each one of the departments of the military in the uh, United States Air Force, it was U.S. Air Force Security Service. And it was such a a, a, a disingenuous name. Uh, Security Service sounded like you were going around checking doorknob. Mm. But what you were actually doing was you were trying to figure out what the intelligence of the Soviet Union and... I wasn't, uh, 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 at that time I was rather young and naive. I was only 18, 19 years old. So I uh, didn't have uh, the aversion, uh, the knowledge of what was going on. See, in, in Germany, in, well I got there in 1955, mm-hmm. but what most people don't know was that there, in 1945 and 46, probably around 2-3 million Germans lost their uh, lives. Uh, it was called the hunger Winter, where uh, people couldn't uh, feed themselves, and so they just died of starvation. That's the hidden pages of history. What I am uh, really fascinated by are the hidden pages of history that nobody knows mm. about and uh, one of my great friends, uh, there were two men- mentors in my life, one you knew, Dick Durham, and the other one was a man by the name of Manfred Stassen. Manfred Stassen was one of three people that really ran Germany for probably 30 or 40 years. The other two with Manfred was Willy Brandt, the Chancellor of Germany, and also Edward Reuter, who was the chairman of Mercedes-Benz but what most people didn't know was Edward Ryder was also a socialist.
0: All right, now before- Sorry, uh, We bring this uh, up to date. (laughs) Let me just pause here and and, uh, point something out. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the city of Chicago, Buzz Palmer's name Uh, is associated with uh independent politics revolts against the democratic machine uh the creation of the african-american patrolman's league uh the harold washington political campaign which was itself an insurrection but uh here's the profound irony 20 years before that uh buzz you were a spy uh for the american government uh and uh very much involved in spying on the soviet union and east germany know, cetera, and stuff. chinese uh, and, and chinese did it at any point did you ask yourself why am i a black guy from the south side of chicago being an operative for the united states and its cold war with the soviet union considering the history of race relations in the in the united states your native country
2: well you have to realize that at that time i was 18 19 years old and relatively naive and ignorant and uh, a lot of these uh, 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 to the people that were doing the intelligence work this was just a job and uh, i had no type of political uh, realization on what we were doing. And uh, I'm sure that the same thing happened with Gary Powers when he was flying the U-2 over the Soviet Union, which was clearly illegal, mm-hmm. and uh, mapping the, uh, the military insulation, and then they would be passed back to us to try and make more intelligence out mm-hmm. of it. So it was just more. It wasn't until later that I become more politically aware. I remember, an eighteen, nineteen-year-old isn't reading klausovich or Sutu or uh, anything like that. He's just a, <laughs> a naive yeah. person. Yeah. Uh, it,
0: for some reason, I keep thinking that Power's first name was Francis.
2: Gary. Uh, Gary Power.
0: It's Gary Power? Okay, I'll take your word for it. I don't have the, uh, my phone in front of me to double-check you. but mm-hmm. uh, uh, All right, so uh, when, when did you finally leave the intelligence?
2: I was in the military from 1955 to 1960. Okay. I was very lucky. I, uh, I came in right. At the end of the Korean War, the Korean War just ended in i believe fifty four and I came in in fifty five and then I got out in nineteen sixty right before the Vietnam War began heating up mm-hmm. so I was very lucky uh, I was really what you would call a peacetime uh soldier
0: you were twenty three years old yeah uh, and so uh what did you did you come back to Chicago?
2: Yes, I came back to Chicago and Because of uh, my crypto clearance, I couldn't tell anyone what I did. The only thing I could tell people was that I was a clerk. Well, much more than a clerk, obviously. But uh, so I uh, just did jobs, drove a CTA bus, uh, drove a taxi cab, anything to make a living. And then that led me to, well, there was a job opportunity in the police uh, department. Mm -hmm. So I applied to the police department and I was accepted.
0: So what year was this when you became a policeman? Do you remember roughly? Uh, Around
2: 1965. 1965.
0: Okay. So 1965, the civil rights movement is just sort of taking off in the city of Chicago. Martin Luther King uh, will move to the west side of Chicago to establish the Northern Front of his movement for uh, uh open housing and civil rights etc and so forth and you were a chicago police officer do you feel did you feel tempted at the time to join up and march with dr king
2: well as a matter of fact i marked uh, i mapped all all of dr king's marches uh the police department uh, put a youth uh, department together uh, together and unwittingly to the police department I proceeded to map for uh, the guy that was in charge of uh, King's marches was a man by the name of Bert Ransom. So, what I would do is go out personally and go through uh, the uh, uh, routing the King should follow uh, Belmont, Craig, and, uh Gage Park, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And then I gave that to Bert, uh, me, and a uh, sergeant uh dick ford we would pass this information so i mapped all of king's marches in chicago so yes i knew
0: so wait were you doing this uh, on behalf of the police department to keep track of dr king no they didn't know
2: they didn't know
0: (laughs) so you were using your knowledge of chicago uh to tell dr king where he should march
2: right that's correct
0: and if the Chicago Police Department had found out that you were doing this, what would they have done?
2: They would probably have fired me, <laughs> remove me.
0: Did uh, did you have any like conscious uh, struggles of conscience over this? Did that Did you feel like you were betraying your oath as a police officer? Did you feel that uh, you you? I mean, was there any sort of like? Were you torn in any way?
2: No, I wasn't torn in any way because what I saw, uh, what King was doing, was a benefit uh, uh, for the total community. And the total community would obviously include the police department, even if they were too dumb to realize it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh,
0: and so, uh, <laughs> uh, so were you there? Did you go on the marches yourself? Yes. Mm-hmm. So you were there in 1966 when he got yeah. hit in the head with a rock?
2: Yes, there was interesting. Uh, uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, Jim uh, Anderson. Uh, I was in an unmarked police car, uh, and uh, uh, four or five white guys came up and they said, Well, we're going to kick your ass. And I told them, Well, I wouldn't advise them to do that because uh, O.W. Wilson, who was the superintendent of police, told everyone we weren't to get our ass kicked. And to show them that I had intentions of fulfilling that, I showed them a 357 Magnum and said, if you even dare try to do anything, I'll blow holes in each one of your heads.
0: And they backed off.
2: Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it sounds like the Clint Eastwood took that premise and made a movie out of it.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> with the gun and everything. <laughs> Uh, So, uh, at what point did you decide that you wanted to uh, found or create the Afro-American Patrolman's League?
2: Well, what had happened was uh, there was, uh, see, people develop at their own uh, stream, like I indicated. Mm -hmm. When I was in uh, Air Force Intelligence, I had no idea of the ideological struggles that were going on. Mm -hmm. It was just a job. And uh, then there's a slow awakening. You begin to read more history, and you begin to realize uh, the turmoil that all this is causing. And just by accident, I happened to pick up a uh, a cover, uh, a magazine at that time, Life Magazine. And it had a picture of a little young boy, it looked like he was around 12 or 13, and he was laying in a pool of uh, blood next to a six-pack of beer in newark uh, new jersey and he had been shot and i guess killed uh for a 99 at that time beer cost 99 cents uh, a six-pack then at almost the same time mayor daly came out with an order of shoot to kill and i said that's it i'm organizing black cops to support the black community so, uh, what I did was I pulled together other black policemen, uh, Frank Lee, uh, Ronald Robinson, and we all met in my basement apartment. And we agreed that what we should do is we should form an organization of black police. And their sole function would be to, uh, uh, to protect the black community later they uh, some of the white policemen uh, said well are you going to also protect them from white policemen and i said yes and at the station that i was working at that time a white sergeant came up to me and he said aren't you worried about other white policemen ganging up and beating on you and i told him no i wasn't worried at all because i always carried my gun with me when i went to work so that backed things up then uh uh when we started you know at this time, black policemen were seen as primarily Uncle Tom's reactionaries or what have you, and for the first time, there was a clear carrying call that what we were going to do was we were going to protect the black community from all uh adverse uh impact from everyone. one. Mm-hmm. Then I uh, pointed out to the black policemen they didn't have any uh, other logic but to protect the uh, black community because they lived in the black community. And then I threatened them a little more, the black policemen, I told them, and they know where you live. (laughs) So uh, there was a number of black policemen uh, that joined, not the majority, because the majority, like uh, Lemming, uh, were uh, leery of uh, joining something so radical uh, that went against Mayor Daly, and said uh, at the press conference that I, announcing the league, I told him we were not going to obey the laws of Mayor Daly of shoot to kill, and so then that began the war that we uh, fought. AND THEN WE BEGIN uh, uh, GIVING PROTECTION uh, TO ALL BLACK LEADERS, Uh, BOTH CAME INTO CHICAGO INCLUDING Stokely CARMICHAEL, uh, uh, AND I NEVER WILL FORGET, Uh, THERE WAS GOING TO BE A MASS MEETING, YOU TALKED ABOUT JESSE JACKSON EARLIER. Mm -hmm. And there was going to be a mass meeting at the old customs building on Canal Street. It doesn't exist anymore. The building doesn't exist anymore. And it was going to be on uh, uh, unions and labor. And so the uh, the white uh, union member said, "We will keep that black asshole out of uh, uh, the meeting where he could testify." So I went to. Uh, Uh, I I told uh, Jesse we would provide protection and get him into the building. And so what happened was he said, well, Buzz, uh, thank you for offering this. But Tom Todd uh, said that uh, he was a, a federal attorney then. He said he'd be able to provide. So I said, okay, well, I'll just check and make sure you're okay. So I went down to 51st and State. And there's Tom Todd, one other person and Jesse Jackson, and uh, so I said, I said, I think we better provide the protection.
0: So, in other words, uh, you were in those, you were when you were off duty, mm-hmm. police officers would pro- provide protection uh, for black dignitaries, social activists that came to town, including radicals. And I recall, uh, and memory is fuzzy, but I recall when Harold Washington then Congressman Washington announced that he was going to run for mayor of the city of Chicago in 82 and into the early part of 83 there were black off-duty police officers who were providing him protection were you one of them
2: yes well that was those were primary of the league and if you uh, look at it when Harold became mayor his uh, the people that guarded him were members of the Afro American Mm Patrolmen's League, and some of us went on to different uh, Harold. uh, uh, When Harold became mayor, I had saved Harold's political life three times. Yeah,
0: you said that. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, uh, the first time uh, was Harold and I and Dick Newhouse, Senator Mm -hmm. Newhouse. We were going down to. uh, We were coming back from Springfield. And uh, I was in the backseat of Dick's car. And so when we pulled up to the uh, gas station to get gas, Harold and I went in to take a leak while Dick paid for the gas. Mm -hmm. And Harold said to me, he said, Buzz, listen, I really wanna uh, 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 go to Congress. And uh, Dick uh, is probably uh, thinking about the same thing is there any way that you could get him to drop out and support me so what happened was i went into This is over the urinal as we were yeah. taking a leap.
0: <laughs> I just had that image. Go yeah. ahead, yeah. <laughs> All the deals are cut in the <laughs> bathrooms. <laughs> uh, go ahead, yeah. So,
2: so I got back in the car with Dick, and Dick, uh, uh, <laughs> he always, uh, and both Harold and Dick, always listened to me very carefully. Mm-hmm. So I told Dick, I said, listen, uh, Dick, you got the Legislative Advisory Committee and it would be very good, Harold wants to go to uh, 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 Congress, why don't you just agree to drop out, and I'm sure Harold would appreciate it. Dick said, okay.
0: Was that easy? Yeah, that easy. So that, that was the first time, what was the second time?
2: The, oh, that, that was the second time. The second time, the first time, was Harold gotten into uh, a stitch, uh, he was a lawyer, and Harold loved books, and so uh, he took this case uh, to defend this guy, and he just uh, went uh, to his apartment and began reading books. <laughs> and so the guy was suing him, and so they were going to re- This was when he was a state rep. Uh-huh. So uh, he knew that I had an old relationship with uh, Marshall Field, and so he asked me, he said, well, uh, Sun-Times will probably come out and ask for my removal from uh, the legislature. Is there any way that you could get uh, Marshall Fields to back off on this?" So I went down and I talked to Marshall. And I told him, listen, Mar- uh Harrell's a good friend. He didn't do anything really wrong. Uh, just that he loves books. <laughs> And it would be very good if uh, you'd back off on uh, 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 the endorsement session of uh, uh, not uh, (coughs) removing him from office. So uh, Marshall uh, did that. So Harold knew the relationship between Marshall and myself. And so he asked me later, you were talking about St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. And so, uh, in, just incidental, uh, uh, Harold called me up and he asked me, "Could he arrange? Could I arrange for him to meet with uh, uh, Marshall Field?" And so I called Marshall and told him I wanted a meeting with him and Marshall uh, Harold and harold would bring us uh uh AD camp uh sam patch mm-hmm. so we came down uh, uh to the fields building hey, tell I
0: just, people should know this marshall Fields, uh, oh. the, the fourth was the family as the family that owned the marshall fields uh department stores which are now macy's and marshall fields uh, the fourth uh, was the owner publisher of the, the Sun Times, uh, my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun Times, and I also believe the Chicago Daily News in those days, Buzz yep. Palmer. So Buzz Palmer, somehow or other, I you skipped this part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's just thing you skip. The, how did how did you know? I mean, it, just knowing Marshall Fields is not like knowing Ben over here. You know what I mean? It's like how'd you get to know a big shot like Marshall Fields?
2: Well, there was a conference that was held at Dartmouth uh, College uh, in New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. and they were very interested in uh, the uh, rising uh, influence of black policemen, and so I came there, and Marshall was a relatively young guy, and so I was always teasing him about that he was only a a paper boy. (laughs) He
0: happened to own the paper. <laughs> He's the paper boy that owns the paper, but whatever. Yeah,
2: and uh, at that time, uh, I believe Emmett Deadman uh, really ran yeah. uh, the Sun Time. Mm-hmm. and he controlled Marshall Fields. And I was teasing. I always teased him at the Dartmouth College about that only thing he was going to be with. So uh, eventually, uh, I got a phone call from Marshall. When he took over the Sun Times, he told Emmett Deadman, "Well, thank you, Emmett. You did a great job, but I'll run it now. No, I'm not a paperboy <laughs> anymore." So he called mm-hmm. up. He called me up, and he said, "The paperboy is now the publisher."
0: <laughs> uh, and so the third. T- so you used that connection with Marshall Fields.
2: Yeah, and then we talked all the time, and so uh, uh, like I said, most uh, white uh, leaders always have. A black friend that they like to talk to.
0: Who's Mayor Daly's black friend? Oh, uh,
2: well, let's see. There were so many um, of. What's uh, the
0: lady's name? I don't know that. By the way, <laughs> there's some oh, boy, people out there. Who's this voice yeah, this coming in? in yeah, this, uh, David Robinson is in the studio, and uh, so at I, any
2: rate, what happened? It, whatever. I
0: know, but that is so funny. You should say that. Uh, every well, how did you phrase that? <laughs> every white leader has a black friend. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean th- that is so Chicago, <laughs> Buzz. Just think about that for a. It's not like a black well, friend mean, they will take anywhere, but uh, hey, let me call you up. And, Avis Lavelle. No, that's Baby Daily. Baby Daily.
2: Yeah. that's oh, Baby old man, and you're yeah. talking old man Daily. Well, Bill, that was yeah. Dawson. Bill Dawson. Yeah. Bill Dawson. Oh, Bill.
0: That's Bill Dawson was the congressman. He ran the South Side. Daly wouldn't have been elected if it wasn't for Bill Dawson that's, delivering the South Side. That was his friend. That's, that's some friend. Yeah. God, I wish I had a black friend like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, at any rate, what happened was that uh, when we met with uh, Marshall, yeah. uh, Marshall had uh, two office spaces at the Phil's building. Uh, mm-hmm. and so, he, uh, uh, Harold was asking him for support. And uh, Marshall said, well, how do you go along with George Dunn? He said, I think of pretty well. He said, well, George Dunn is in my other office. You mind if I bring him in?
0: George Dunn at the time was chairman of the Cook County Democratic Party. A
2: very great gentleman. Mm -hmm. So he brings George Dunn in, and Harold was petrified of marching in the St. Patrick's Day, (laughs) happened to be on the same day. And so George Dunn, the great gentleman, he said, are you going to march in the uh, St. Patrick's Day Parade? And Harold said, yeah, I'm sort of dreading. he said, well, do you mind if I walk with you? So how were all these uh, racist whites going to be jamming George Dunn when he was marching with Harold Washington? So that was the third one.
1: And you might want to... Give the the younger audience a little context on why that's a big deal, St. Patrick's Day Parade. Yeah. A big deal. Well,
0: the, uh, for a black guy to march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade uh, back in the day is a big deal. Uh, particularly now, this is when Harold had he been elected? Uh, no, he yeah. hadn't been elected. Uh, yeah, that was a big, t- I'll tell you what, I have a memory. This is a memory with Cecil party was Cecil, the very good. State mm-hmm. Senator Cecil Partee, the yeah. committeeman for the 20th war. Yeah. And he was the Senate president. Uh, the weird stuff that I know. Uh, and, um, but I remember this is a tangent with a tangent. Buzz Palmer put up with me for a moment. Uh, when I knew Oprah was the real deal was I think in 85 or so I saw Oprah Winfrey uh, she was on the ABC booth with this mink, <laughs> and she was in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And it was like Oprah said, I own this parade. <laughs> okay, Buzz? It's like, you, know. you got. she was just like, her arms out, you know, I own this parade. <laughs> and I was like, wow, <laughs> dude, this woman yeah. is something else. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, I knew it because that's the symbolism, David Robinson, of the, the St. Patrick's Day Parade was like the white parade. Uh, and uh, this is how Chicago was so racially divided. That's when I moved here and I couldn't believe. And I'll tell you this buzz that I, I've told this story many times that my I first came to recognize and my own I was very naive when I moved to Chicago, okay And I came to recognize the difference between white co- black cops and it stayed with me all these years. In 1983, Harold Washington ran for mayor. He was victorious in the Democratic primary. In those days, the Democratic, winner would go against the republican winner and the republican winner was a gentleman named bernard epton uh, a liberal jewish guy for republican from hyde park all of a sudden he became the great white hope white people in the city of chicago to almost. my amazement, almost. almost well, he, I mean, he became their hope. Mm-hmm. He did not achieve the dream they wanted. were supported him. They were pouring into his campaign offices. And his campaign offices were just on the street from where I used to work for. Before told, it's too late. Before it's before too late. It's for, too late. For, for, That's for, right. for the reporter. Watermelon and, and chicken. And so many bl- cops. There were so many cops. And and, and so much the opposition of Tahir was coming to the police department. I remember I was standing outside City Hall one time talking to this. A gentleman a black guy and so I said what do you do a uh, police officer oh and I said oh well you must be for Epton you know because he's a cop he looked at me like I was crazy he goes I'm for Harold Washington and I thought I said to him I thought all the cops were for Epton mm-hmm. he said the white cops are for Epton <laughs> and that's when I learned you yeah. know naive guy who doesn't know Chicago that there's a difference between white cops and black cops in the city of Chicago
2: Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: And and uh, that was a powerful lesson I learned that day.
1: Side story, sidebar story. Um, in the second run, I, I had come back to town to get involved with everything. Uh, so it was about 86, I guess. Um, and my assignment was to go to the projects and register voters and get the brothers ready for Harold. Uh, let me tell you the power of Harold. So you in those days, if you went to the Jets, they had guards out in front. Uh, gang, gang bangers out in front. And you couldn't, white cops, definitely not, and anybody else couldn't get in the building. So I would go, and I'd you know, give the brothers dap, say yo man, I'm trying to sign people up for Harold. Harold, hold up. They'd go upstairs, <laughs> and and they would come back down, and they say come on. And they would take me door to door, and they'd be like boom, 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 boom. Somebody open the door, yo, sign this. <laughs> That was yeah. it. That was it. And so I would get every <laughs> building on State Street, every building in the green, and Al Kendall and I ran the projects. But the power of Harold was, if if you were with Harold, you could cross those lines in the community that were dangerous otherwise and be invited and walk through. And nothing like that exists anymore. Nothing like no. that exists. No.
2: And see, when Harold you're right yeah Yeah. you're right when Harold was running he asked me to coordinate his campaign first he asked me to coordinate the total city and then he called me back and he said listen I'm getting pushback from whites in Hyde Park Uh, and uh, so what I'm going to have to do is divide this up Jackie Grimshaw will do the white part and you'll do uh, the black south side west side so I began coordinating that, and one of the things the Black nationalists uh, had sort of an aversion for the Democratic Black DEMOCRATS. Stroger Eugene Sawyer was uh, an alderman at that mm-hmm. time, Sixth Ward. Yeah, and so what I did was uh, I felt that if they had a real option of getting off the plantation, they'd get off the plantation. So I went and I met with Stroger, met with Gene Sawyer, now Sherman, all the leadership. Mm-hmm. And they were all telling me the same story. Uh, they wanted to support Harold, but uh, the black nationalists uh, wouldn't give him any uh, uh, Harold uh, literature. And I said, Well, I'll handle that. So I went down to the warehouse where uh, uh, Harold's uh, literature was. I said, uh, with a truck. And I said, oh, okay, I want the, uh, I want the, the literature. And yeah. they said, well, who are you going to give it to? I said, I'm going to give it to uh, the ward committeeman. They said, well, you can't do that. I said, oh, yes, I can. They said, there's a lock on the door. So I uh, got a, a sledgehammer and broke the lock, uh, loaded up the trucks, and took it back to Stroger. God, uh, it was a risk, but I felt that... Stroger, now Sherman, Gene Sawyer—I forgot the other aldermen out there. Or if they saw a real opportunity to get off the plantation, and they did, and they got off the plantation. <laughs> and see what isn't commonly known is that uh, uh, Harold Washington and John Stroger had a historically long relationship of uh, the Young uh, Black Democrat uh, Club. -hmm. And so they uh, uh, they really carried the election, they they carried it, Mm -hmm. and so after Harold became mayor, uh, he asked me what type of position did I want. I could get any position I wanted, and I told him I wanted to be foreign minister.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Every city needs one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So so Harold looked at me and said, "God damn, Buzz, there ain't any position, uh, foreign minister." And I said, well, I guess that means that I don't get a position. And later something came across my desk about Sister Cities International. And so I went down and I told Harold I wanted to uh, uh, reconfigure the Sister Cities Committee, which was tying uh, uh, cities into Chicago. I told Harold that I would be the chairman and would make the decision and he would be the honorary chairman. And Harold looked at me for a while, and then he bust out and laughed, and he said, oh, you mean a Buzz Palmer operation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so
1: Ben, you might want to have him talk a little bit about what Elsie oh. was doing at the time. Yeah. Compran and challenging mm-hmm. the university and building the stuff at IIT.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I was actually going to ask oh, go ahead. Yeah, that, I, I was actually going to ask you, <laughs> since you, you mentioned Harold Washington. Mm-hmm. And your closeness to Harold Washington. This has been on my mind lately. Uh, he died. The anniversary of his death, David Robinson, was a couple of weeks ago, and the, the political fallout in the city, uh, thirty years at, later, uh, is still very dramatic. Buzz Palmer. And uh, so, why don't you rec- uh, do a little, uh, go back in time to the day Harold died, 1987, and uh, where you were, and uh, you hmm. know your memories of that day.
2: Well, the weird part about it was that uh, uh, John, uh, John Casey, he was the president at that time of the Metropolitan YMCA, one of the most powerful men in the, uh, the city. And he told me that they had Harold's uh, appointment book for the last day of his life. And he died at 10 o'clock. In the uh, appointment book it said two o'clock Buzz Palmer. He was supposed to meet with me at 2 o'clock, so I make the joke to people that Harold was so tired of meeting with me. <laughs> he said, I'd rather die than have to meet again with Buzz. And, uh, 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 he had, uh, uh, obviously, a security uh, uh, group led by Frank Lee, mm-hmm. And what happened it turned out that Frank Lee, before he was a policeman, had, uh, 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 had a nursing certificate as well. And this is a black guy from the west side, around six foot three, and you never think of him as a nurse. But he, he was really in charge of uh, Harold's uh, detail. So he he and Harold uh, and the detail went to 50th and the Lake and I had a big breakfast. Then they came back to City Hall, and when they came back to City Hall, Frank told me he took Harold's uh, coat and went to hang it up, and Harold killed over. And when he killed over... Uh, Frank immediately began trying to, how do you pronounce it, resucute?
1: resuscitate
2: resuscitate, <laughs> resuscitate uh, him. And he was on the ground. Now what most people don't know, according to Frank, while he was trying to uh, bring Harold back to life, he looks out the door and there's the commissioner of health uh, and another doctor. And he yells, help, uh, the boss needs help. And they both turned around and walked away.
1: Whoops, conspiracy.
2: Mm-hmm. They, uh, I don't know this is what Frank told me. And then they obviously they took uh, Harold to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. And look, look,
1: I have to say that again. so the two big biggest, most important chief doctors in the city and the county or in the room, or at least outside the door, saw it happening. Walked and away turn,
2: and walked away.
1: What do you make of that?
2: I don't know. Frank doesn't know either. He was really uh, perplexed uh, why they turned around and walked away, but they did walk away.
1: So the folks in the hood have always believed there was something tricky. Oh, I, yeah. I, I mean, this is Frank, yeah, Frank this, always this a scoop. The,
2: Frank always contended that. Uh, uh, what Harold died of, though, was overeating. Thank you. Yeah, yeah.
0: Please repeat that for the <laughs> the, the witness, uh, the court, because uh, I, I I mean I, I don't pretend to know Harold Washington, but I watched him uh, all the and Harold got bigger and bigger. And bigger. Yes, Two right. things happened, uh, David and Buzz, and you know this as well as I do. One, uh, because he became mayor. But three things really. He became <laughs> you know. heir. He he didn't. He stopped exercising. He stopped, you know. People pick him up. He didn't have to walk anywhere. You know, he was sh- So any just basic exercise. Any plus, he was 64, 63 years old. So he's not a young man. Two, he was a great athlete. Uh, When he was coming, up, a boxer, and he was a runner, but by the time uh, he was mayor of the city of Chicago, he was at least 60, 70 pounds uh, overweight,
1: and he smoked, and he never turned down one of those church dinners that
0: them ladies (laughs) would serve him, (laughs) (laughs) never. So, you know, I'll I'll entertain a conspiracy theory as much as the next guy. Uh, Buzz and David, but I never have bought into this conspiracy bec- and oh, and I cannot help, I gotta add this the pressure yeah. Harold Washington was under the pressure of expectations from black people in the city of Chicago the hatred from the white establishment in the city of Chicago, trying to do the right thing all the time I, I don't know how he, I mean you yeah, know, so that could crumble anybody
2: One yeah, of the yeah. things that you always had to factor in well, Sarah was unusual as uh, a political leader. He was an intellectual. He read all the time, all the time. When he died, what they found, uh, they said, well, he must have uh, stashed away a fortune. What it turned out, he I believe he had an insurance policy for around 80000 but he had tons and tons of books. Yeah. And the only thing he loved to do was read. Yeah. And that's why we got along so well.
0: Yeah. I uh, People tease me. They say, oh, Ben, get over it. It's 32 years ago. Uh, and I, I still haven't got over it, Buzz Palmer. Um, and rightly so.
1: 30 years well, ago, the steel mills were still cranking. Mm hmm. The industrial capacity of the city; people were working with with jobs that they could have a couple of cars, send kids to college, buy a home. In thirty five years ago, two things happened: the deindustrialization of the south and west sides, which caused a loss of two hundred fifty thousand jobs almost overnight, and all of the associated and 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 sort of concentric circle of economic development imploded everything. Mm-hmm. So, what replaces that? Drugs, you know, the, all, the whole bit, uh, and then. When Harold and the coalition fell apart, this is why we're here today.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, By that uh, interpretation, Buzz Palmer.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, see, and uh, the demise of the family. Uh, a young uh, guy uh, would knock up a girl, and uh, then the families would get together, and they say, "Well, you knocked her up. Now you're going to be a family man." And you're going to have to go out to the steel mills. Uh, her father uh, will uh, get you a job in the steel mills. Or uh, there was a big factory, in Westinghouse on, I believe, California or one of the uh, major streets. And all those are gone now. And uh, what you've uh, uh, seen uh, during the time after Harold died, you have to remember... There were numerous black banks that were uh, providing substance uh, for development in the community. There was South Shore Bank, Gateway, uh, uh, Southside Bank, on and on and on. All those are now gone. Almost all the restaurants in this, uh, on the far south side are now also gone. It became a desolate. If Harold was alive, uh, Lightfoot is now beginning to talk about, See, there's been uh, around 300,000 blacks that have left the city of Chicago. And uh, what uh, Lightfoot is talking about is trying to uh, stench uh, the flow out. And what's tied into that is uh, the question of job. Mm -hmm. That's why... uh, uh, there's been numerous reports of the de-industrialization of uh, good-paying jobs, and what uh, my son David is trying to do is uh, get uh, uh, some of the jobs back uh, in manufacturing because manufacturing has a tremendous ripple effect.
0: Well, well let's 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 uh, uh, close this interview with yeah, this point. Sure. With this point. Uh, it's And it's interesting that you mention uh, Lori Lightfoot's initiative. We've talked about that in the show already and probably write about it as well. Lori Lightfoot uh, gave a speech the other day. It was an Hill. interesting speech, uh, far different than anything I ever heard come from Rahm. Uh, she was talking about the future of the city of Chicago. And Lori Lightfoot said, and I'm paraphrasing, Andrew, uh, sure. that uh, the city uh, cannot be uh, strong again, will not be as strong as it should be. Uh, until we end this out-migration. Uh, and the out-migration our uh, black people. And, Buzz, I'm going to tell it to you the way I see it. And disagree with me if you want. But that was never an issue or a quote-unquote problem when Rahm and Mayor Daley, I never heard, we're the mayors, I never heard anybody complaining about black people leaving Chicago. This has been going on for a long time. And uh, so I give, I've had my issues with Lori Lightfoot and some issues, but I'll give her credit for this. She was the one who said, this is a problem that we have to address. And I wanna see us uh, work on this and change this. So. Do you feel there's any hope? I mean, you've been living in Chicago your whole life, the, f- the 50s, the 60s. You saw the black people move to Chicago. You saw these neighborhoods expand. And then you saw these neighborhoods contract. Yes. So do you think there there is any hope?
2: Well, uh, so you, a lot of this is dedicated on the question of policy. Uh, my friend uh, Jim Flagg always talks about the role that uh, LBJ played. Which, uh, when he came up with the Great Society. And what he did was he concentrated on people that were in poverty or left out of the equation. And uh, uh, everybody talks about Reagan and they talk about other people, but nobody talks about anymore about LBJ because his focus was on poverty and bringing people out of poverty. Now, the other thing that is fascinating when I say policy, uh, intellectual activity, one of the things doing Harold Washington uh, reign was he had brought in a guy by the name of Rob Mayer. And Rob Mayer immediately realized that uh, 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 there was a tendency to only concentrate on the core uh, city, uh, downtown area. So he came up with something called link development. And link development meant that what you, and Laurie Lightfoot needs to look at what he did. He was brilliant. Uh, he was my aide-de-camp. And what he, uh, 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 what he insisted, if you build in downtown areas, you also have to build in uh, the neighborhood. And all that has been uh, forgotten. Uh, uh, harold uh harold lbj really set parameters for how to move uh uh, not only a city and lbj how you move a country and that has to be re-examined no one wants to talk about that because it's almost uh, 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 impossible to talk about poverty see emil uh, durkheimer uh, Uh, who was one of the founders of modern uh, sociology out of France, he always contended that you have to look at uh, poverty as creating violence. If you have poverty, then you have violence. Now, Teresa Cordova, over at the University of Illinois at Great City, she did a study that indicated that uh, black uh, boys between 18 and 24 around 60, 70% of them are unemployed or out of school. And so, obviously, they're in poverty. And then you have this tremendous corollary of violence that is taking place throughout uh, 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 the city and uh, also outside of the country, sorry. No, no, it's
1: good. I I just wanted to address the question, Um, the uh, memo, to the mayor. Um, embrace industrial policy that would begin to bring back these manufacturing levels, you know, career skill, technical skill jobs, and some of that's happening, so I'll give her some, some credit on that. Um, reinstate uh, or completely shake up CPS school system. Schools are absolutely fucked up, it's ridiculous. It, it's an embarrassment. Kids, and I work with these young people all the time, And the smartest of the ones in the worst schools believe they've made it and they're valedictorians and they go off to UIC or somewhere to college and they fail in the first six months because they're not prepared. And then they're in a cycle, particularly the males now get in this gig hustle, gig street life cycle. So that's why you see these young guys where you scratch your head. He came from a decent family. It seems like he's okay. Well, problem is he didn't have the educational tools to do any better and street life is right now money in your pocket right now dude take this pack take care of your business you know we'll see you. um and if there are no other options like when i was growing up there was all these youth things that you could do for free right none of that's around anymore man you got to be in some club or go to the old town folk music center or some <laughs> shit. you know it's not that there's anything wrong with the old town no no and it's a great place yeah but, but how many you. brothers yeah. up in there right really you know come on Couple. so <laughs> Uh, And and then the other thing, too, is uh, have you noticed what her cabinet looks like? Uh, And the folks who run it, you know, Harold taught me directly. uh, When you take over government like we did, you've got to put everybody in the decision making roles at every level that are in have the interest of your community. So, all them Polish guys, no offense, man, uh, <laughs> all them Irish guys, all yeah. them Italian guys that were running streets yeah. and sand and all these departments, you know, uh. okay, <laughs> retire the ones where it's time to go and hire young people that support the forward momentum. But if you look at who's being hired, city government, it looks a lot like suburban white kids to me. And I also noticed that the mayor's office has difficulty kind of, they, they do the community thing. Yeah. And she's really good at that, I noticed. But she doesn't live anywhere near there. But she's good at that. And I know I'm going to get in trouble. You this, are going to get in trouble. <laughs> Poor Buzz Popper goes, I didn't say any of this. It was David saying this. <laughs> it's just observations. Okay. So I'm out there all the time. And I do this. I'm actually authentic in the street doing the work, right? I'm. We do that. Buzz, do you buy I buy what your that. son is saying?
2: <laughs> uh, I agree with, uh, I agree 100% uh, what are you, uh saying. See, there's a German word you were saying to speak any other language, German, and it's called feel," And what it means is you feel politics through the tips of your fingers. And if you're uh, isolated from uh, the feel of politics through actually your fingers on the pulse of uh, the the society, you're lost. And... uh, uh, you know, it's uh, just uh, uh, fascinating. Uh, see, one of the things that I mentioned in that paper, I was talking about the Peel uh, uh, the person that formed the first police department, mm-hmm. and it was called uh, Robert Peel, Sir Robert Peel. And one of the things that he talked about was uh, 1852, You know, it's fascinating to me, that was almost 200, that was over 200 years ago, and the same principles that he was talking about then are applicable today. I'm talking about what I did when I formed, I broke the mold where black policemen were seen as primarily, uh, and as you can see by the New York Times Mm -hmm. article, That they're beginning to speak out in favor of uh, their communities because they're uh, they're the communities that are affected and uh, uh, the last thing on that is as you move these uh, people through uh, the, uh, the system they have to be rooted in the affected community if you're going to have a police department that uh, uh, that only is capable of solving 8% of the black homicides, then the, ones that the 92% that uh, get free after they kill somebody go out and kill somebody else. You need to have people in the community. You need jobs in the community. David talks about young men. That never had a job and go through these programs. The next mm-hmm. thing he knows, they're buying uh, two flat uh, for both uh, their wives and their kids, and his mother lives on the second floor. So the question of poverty is incorrectly tied in. To the uh, the question of violence, mm-hmm, if That's you don't right. have if you don't have uh, uh, job, if you have poverty, you're going to have violence. And that was Emile Durkheimer, who founded uh, sociology over 200 years mm-hmm. ago.
1: Yeah, and the, the part of the black flight, the reverse migration, they, they're calling it now. Is, um, sorry. Oh no, it's good stuff. It just, you got me thinking about why brothers are leaving and I got curious about that too. So I, I, I went to Morehouse, so I'd go back and forth to Atlanta a lot, still hang out with a lot of my fellows and a lot of the, probably 25% of the folks that left went to Atlanta. Some went to Houston, some went to other places. And these are a lot of times emerging young professionals. Um, they couldn't find the kind of work they wanted here. Opportunities are much better in Atlanta. They weren't being welcomed here at the corporate level. There is this whole sort of layered racism that is very subtle, um, and but we know it, we can feel it. We got an antenna for it. And they felt it and they leave. The other thing is, that where are you gonna send your kids to school? You gotta be politically connected to get your kids into a decent school in this town. Mm. So there are, what, 25, maybe 30 that meet national or, or better standards of course the selective enrollments and then some of the charters, if you're willing to you know, hold your nose and deal with the issues with just charter in general. It, any other school, you're taking your kid's life in your hands, and black people have always looked for how to take care of their kids, like mm. anybody else. Yeah, and, anybody else. And, and so they would send them to Catholic school when I was coming up, you know, um, rather than the local school. But the local school wasn't all that bad, it was just a step below. Now it is basement level for most of these well, kids and dangerous. So time to go.
0: We got well, to get out. Well, it is time to go, but uh, we'll have you back cuz this is a cover. We we ended this uh, discuss- uh, this show with uh, an issue that is very much alive. We started off talking buzz about the history, uh, your history in Chicago, the history of the formation of the Afro-American Patrolmen's League, and now we're talking about uh, a transformation of the city and uh and what i and i'll, and I'll repeat what i said uh, until lori lightfoot um, made that speech the other day the leaders of chicago didn't even recognize it as a quote-unquote problem uh and chris kennedy was the one who said in the last gubernatorial race that this was their policy uh buzz so like i said this is the this is a whole other conversation that we should have at another time uh, so anyway, I want to close it down now. Uh, Buzz, I want to thank you very much. David, I want to thank you as well. I thought you were going to sit there quietly, but he couldn't help. <laughs> me. Couldn't help he, myself. He was bad. writing me notes. I'm trying to read his <laughs> notes. And he finally <laughs> just said the heck what I'm going to. Uh, and uh, thank you very much, Buzz Palmer. Too, it took me too long to get you in the studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll have you back real soon. Uh, Buzz and, and maybe his even smarter wife.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a free country, Alice Palmer. <laughs> Anytime you want to come on down uh, to the Ben Rafty Show, sure you're more than welcome. Take care, everybody.